You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. 100 episodes. This is awesome. 100. And of course, it's Teresa Mora. What's up, Teresa? I'm good. How are you, Renee? I'm doing awesome. I'm so pumped up about the new music. The new music makes me happy. We are going to get into the nitty gritty of our new music in a future episode, but we don't have time to talk about that now because with our 100th episode comes a freaking amazing giveaway for all of our listeners. Yes, it is an awesome giveaway. Teresa, why don't you tell us what the prizes are for this giveaway? There are five prizes. The fifth prize is from Sound Radix. It's a license of Power, the radically smart compressor. Fourth prize is from Isotope, and that is a license of RX Standard, the complete toolkit for audio cleanup and restoration. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. The third prize, again from Sound Radix, is a license of AutoAlign Post, which is the fast and simple way to get location mics in phase. Pretty awesome piece of software there. Yeah, that one's fun. The second prize, uh, also from Sound Radix, a license for Auto Align Post and the Radical Bundle 3. The Sound Radix Radical Bundle 3 includes all five of the studio plugins, Auto Align, Surfer EQ, Pi, Drum Leveler, and Power, and as I said, also a license for Auto Align Post. And finally, the first prize, the grand prize, is from Pro Sound Effects, and that is the Odyssey Collection Essentials. Odyssey Essentials is a general library with over 16,000 sound effects curated from over 250 films worked on by Academy Award-winning sound editors Mark Mangini, our guest today, and Richard L. Anderson. Oh my God, those are some awesome prizes. I have the Odyssey Collection Essentials, and I used it all day today, actually. I was editing a, sh- editing a show, and it saved my bacon. There was a shot in the show of someone shaking their glasses, but it had to make noise, like eyeglasses. Glasses, and it had to make noise and I found the perfect sound in there and I was positive I would never find that sound and I was going to have to make something up and get in the Foley booth but I just found it quickly because the metadata in it is awesome and uh, I love that library and Renee you are familiar with auto align post right? Yeah we use that in dialogue editing all the time because what you can do with it is you can take a boom and a lav and basically with two clicks phase align them and really lock them in and, and we've talked about that with some of the dialogue editors in the show and uh, it's it's just so key to make certain interesting things happen. I've been using it in my field recording also because sometimes I'll just do weird two and three mic setups and I can phase align multiple things. It's so simple and it opens up possibilities for multiple mics up in, in different distances from sources that kind of didn't exist before. It's great. Yeah, and then we also have obviously the uh, Isotope RX that we're giving away, which I think we all can't live without. It's a nope. life-saving piece of uh, software for sure. So we yep. want to thank Sound Radix, Isotope, and Pro Sound Effects for donating these prizes. We really appreciate them. Go out there and support the companies that support us. We really appreciate it. But I guess before you go buy any of these, see if you can win them first. How would you do that? Let me tell you. Here are the rules. All right. We need you to send an email to enter at tonebenderspodcast.com. E-N-T-E-R at ToneBendersPodcast.com. The subject line of your email must be giveaway, G-I-V-E-A-W-A-Y, all one word. In the body of that email, you must give us your name and an email address where we can contact you 
if your entry is selected as one of the five winners. You could also use this opportunity to tell us which of the 100 episodes is your favorite Tone Benders episode and tell us why. Or share an idea for a future episode that you have in the back of your head that we haven't done yet. That would be great. We would appreciate your input. The winners will be selected at random from the eligible entries. We will accept only one entry per submitted email address. We will pick the winners on May 29th and contact the winners via the email address provided in the entries. So the winners will have 72 hours to accept the prize, after which, if we do not get a reply, we will pick a new winner. Okay. In order to win the pro sound effects, you have to live in a country that FedEx delivers to because that comes on hard drive. The rest, licenses will just be emailed to you once you win. Now, if you're tired of listening to all of that or you fast-forwarded through it, go to www.tonebenderspodcast.com to the page for this episode and all of the instructions on how to enter are there. If you want to do us a big favor, help us spread the word about this giveaway. Let everybody know about this uh, episode and the giveaway that's going along with it. We'd really appreciate getting the word out there because we're really proud of this episode. We're also proud of the 100 that came before it. So we would love people to uh, that don't know about the podcast to hear about it. And we think this is a really good way. So tell your friends, maybe send out a tweet. Be awesome if, if you could tweet out what your favorite episode of the first 100 was. That'd be pretty great. Other than that, just help us spread the word. That's all we ask in return for this giveaway. Sweet. Let's get to the interview with uh, Mark Mangini. Something I found about with sound people is we kind of love to complain a lot. I'm guilty of this as much as anyone, and we often are the last step in the process, so we rarely have time or resources that we want to have. But there are also some great and profound joys to be found in this line of work, and I feel like sometimes we need to pause every now and then and celebrate these moments. If you go back to our 50th episode, we asked listeners to send in their greatest stories of audio glory, and we had a really great episode listening to those victories, and we wanted to repeat that kind of thing with our 100th episode, but put a little twist on it. So instead of asking listeners, this time we asked former guests to send in clips of their favorite audio uh, triumphs. So some of them are talking about aha moments when they were early in their career and they decided that, oh, this is for me. I'm going on the right path. Some of them are later in their careers where they sat back and were like, yes, I did make all the right choices. I'm glad I am where I am. So today we have clips sent in from Ethan Van Der Ryan, Richard King, Sylvain Belmar, Paul Davies, Nia Hartstone and John Warhurst. Mildred Iatru Morgan and Eiling Lee, Erica Dahl, Skip Livesey, and sitting in with us today to listen to all these clips and uh, gab about them with us is the great Mark Mangini coming in for a returning champion stint on the podcast. Welcome, Mark. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, I'm an August company. Your episode that we recorded uh, two years ago is one of uh, the ones that gets spoken to me and quoted back to me the most. So thank you very much for doing that then, and thanks for sitting in with us again for this 100th episode. I think it's going to be really fun. Thanks. So the first set of clips we're going to play are Ethan Van Der Ryan and Richard King. We're going to play them together because they're kind of talking about uh, similar events. And then uh, once we hear them, we will uh, see what similar events we've had in our careers. When I was first starting as an effects assistant, I was up at Skywalker Ranch. We started working on Terminator 2. So my job was really to go out and gather recordings of everything we needed for the film. It reminded me of what I loved most about being in film school and making my own little movies, which was really the process of 
going out into the world, record sounds and just reacting to the situation that was going on around me in a sort of cinema verite kind of style. And there's a certain amount of um, seat of your pants, kind of like, okay, this is not happening the way I expected, but I'm going to be able to be flexible and react to it in a way and, and get some amazing, amazing recordings. Gary Rystrom was the sound designer on that movie. And he said, Ethan, why don't you like take this scene and start working, you know, with some of the sounds that you've recorded and see how that goes for you. And it was like completely magical that that kind of alchemy that you get to be a part of and create something new in a way out of what feels like nothing. And that's when I realized, oh, yeah, this is this is going to work for me. And Richard King? After I graduated from college in, in Florida, I moved to New York City and just kind of got my feet wet and tried to find work, tried out a few different things and landed a job with a, a guy, one-man shop, did documentaries, shot them, edited them. We took them to a stage, we mixed them. And so I was able to try out a number of different areas in film. I was his camera loader, I was his gaffer, I was his assistant editor, and uh, ultimately his sound editor. He let me uh, cut the sound on a documentary that he was cutting about the building of a dam in Brazil, one of the biggest construction projects in the world at the time. It was all MOS. I just pulled a bunch of sound effects and started cutting them, and it, it was amazing footage to begin with. But what really impressed me was the fact that seeing it with sound was a completely different experience. It, was, it had depth. It had scope. It had a, uh, an impressiveness that it didn't have before. When I put my sound editor hat on, I could do anything. I was only limited by my imagination and how hard I wanted to work on it. Uh, as far as adding uh, subtext and adding sense of place and all the things that are important in film, it felt like I was kind of creating a painting of these moving images that I had in front of me. And I really just latched onto that. So those are two stories about kind of the first time they found the magic of adding uh, sound to picture. What, what was your first time doing that, Mark? Well, my first first? Well, oddly, um, when I was 15 years old, um, I was playing in a band and we went down into my bass player's basement and his dad was one of the early research scientists on reel-to-reel tape recorders. And he and I put on a radio play and somehow I became the sound effects guy <laughs> um, spinning in sound effects from records. Now, this was all as a sort of a, a little sidelight to being a musician in a band. And it was a one-off. I didn't even know people do those kinds of things for a living. And four years later, I moved to Los Angeles, not even remembering having done that. And what's the first job I get? Wow. It, it's bizarre. And we just, and I only know this because I had no memory of the, of the moment, but my friend was rooting around in his now grandfather's basement and he found the reel-to-reel tape that his grandfather had made surreptitiously. And now I am in possession of my first work. <laughs> How awesome is it? Uh, it's awful. But <laughs> it, it shows great youthful exuberance. Do you have your first work, Tim? I, when I was in high school, I was in charge of making the commercials 
that went over the PA system in the morning. So that when the announcements happened, if there was a school play or something coming up, I would make commercials. And the first one I did was was for the Halloween dance. And I took my Meatloaf Bat Out of Hell record, and one of the songs starts with a, a spooky voice saying, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? And so I had to do it all live. I had no multi-tracking. And I would play that, and then while I was queuing up the next thing, I would start reversing it slowly. So it would go, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? And then I'd start reading the copy. October 31st, high school dance, Halloween, do the monster mash. And then I'd hit the monster mash or some baloney like that that was the first one i did by the end of the year i got pretty good at it but that first one i remember i did 300 takes and it was simple it was two records and a voice going to cassette but yeah i i was nervous because i realized that everybody in the school would be hearing my voice for the first time over the pa and that uh that didn't help the situation Teresa, do i i know i can't remember anything like that my first on tape was I volunteered at a college radio station when I was in high school, and that put us in what they call closed circuit, yeah. which just broadcast down the hallway to the men's bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first audience. Nice. Renee? Uh, when I was in school, I, my, my final project was a song that I wrote called Greasy Lovin', and I still have it <laughs> Wow. on dat. Um, up in my closet somewhere and I don't know if I'll ever be able to retrieve it again. Yeah, dat machines are they don't they just rip apart dats now. All the ones that I yeah, have because they, they haven't been they on just for don't so long. Do anything. I was lucky I didn't leave it to leave it at D eighty eight. Oh, it's gonna have to remain a figment of our imagination then what that song yeah, sounded that's, like. I think the the title says it all. It was <laughs> <laughs> it it wasn't bad though. Uh the clip from Ethan Vanderine when he told me that I, he's been on the podcast a couple times now, so I, I feel like I can mess with him a little bit. And, uh, so he said that, and then he stopped and I went, it's so great that you've come so far from your humble beginnings on Terminator 2. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, what? And, and then he got that I was joking with him, but at first he thought I was being mean, I think. But yeah, that's that, a nice first gig. Yeah, that, it's a pretty uh, sweet gig. Th that story from Ethan reminded me of a similar one uh, in my uh, own early days, except not nearly as um, profound. Um, my mentor uh, was the great Richard Anderson, who won an Oscar for Raiders of the Lost Ark and would be my partner for many years. And early in my career, Richard took me under his wing, maybe much as Gary uh, Reidstrom had taken Ethan under his wing and gave him that great opportunity to work on Transformers. Um, uh, inversely, Richard gave me my first opportunity on a very lowly, schlocky Canon Films horror movie called <laughs> Heckle and Hype. And uh, the opportunity it gave me was unique because I, it was instructive to me early in my career. At around 11 p.m., we were working very late together, and he had to go home, and a reel was due on the mix stage the next morning, and he was just done, and I was the young kid, and he handed me a box of sound effects, and he said, here, Mark, cut reel three. And, you know, it was a box, you know, an old film box. A lot of you, I'm sure, are listening to this and don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but sound used to be physical, and it had sprockets. <laughs> and he handed me a box, a very limited palette of sounds to use. It might have been 20 sounds to cover an entire... 10-minute reel. And uh, the point of this is that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, given very, very limited resources. Uh, other than the sounds that he had given me, I had to make something happen. 
uh, in a scene where a man was in a jail cell and hearing something happening off camera that made him frightened. And, and, and I got good feedback from Richard the next day. He said the mix went fabulously, and he loved the juxtaposition uh, I had created of, uh, sort of untoward elements that had no uh, kind of right to be uh, in the same mix together, but um, created a sense of what the heck is that going on <laughs> off camera? And so, and so the, you know, the, the, the takeaway for me was um, sometimes um, uh, self-imposed restrictions creates great art uh, when you have the kind of the guts to do it. And I've had this argument with Randy Tom about this many, many times. What's Randy Tom's perspective? Well, um, I, I told him an, about another thing that I do when I'm struggling to find a sound, and that is, is I play a library roulette. I'll close my eyes and open my library browser and type, you know, A, B, X, Y, L, and whatever sound comes up, I compel myself to use it somehow. That's, that's another form of enforced restriction. And now I'm doing Randy an injustice because he, he came back to me with his opposite approach to doing that, which was sort of the, the open universe of sounds that you can use. But I don't remember exactly how he does it. You actually provided an excellent segue into our next set of clips when you were talking about your mentor, because the next two clips are both people talking about the mentorship that they had. First up, Sylvain Belmar, who uh, was on episode 83 with Bernard Garapi Strobel, uh, and they were talking about a rival, and Bernard's father was Hans-Peter Strobel, and he was kind of the, uh, the icon of Montreal sound back in the day, mm. and he took Sylvain under his wing, and uh, so this is Sylvain talking about how important Hans-Peter was to the Montreal scene. I would say that Hans-Peter was different than others in sound uh, people. Uh, the fact that he was from Europe, and I, re I remember when I started, I really connect with him about his, his temper because he, he, he was from a different culture. Uh, I will say sound people are only interesting by sound and technology. And Hans-Peter has a way bigger culture than that. And he was somebody who knew cinema and stuff like that. So he was able to connect with different things. At the end of the day, if you're just a, if you're just a very good technician, it's really not enough. So Hans-Peter really brought that culture. If you're sitting with him on the next to the console, you have to be there, you have to be concentrated. He wasn't, he can laugh a lot, but he was also a personality that things have to be done in the right way. Sometimes the pressure was really high in the mixing room with him. But it was, it, it was his background, it was the culture at the time. He was born in the 40s, in the continent when everything was upside down. So he came from that strong culture of, of living and he, he had this passion. His passion was really high. He was a fantastic person. And, but. Without Hans-Peter, things would have been different. Yeah, he, br he brought a certain quality to it. And, and Bernard, Bernard today for me is the best uh, recording mixer. So it's interesting how you can pass some legacy to things. So that was uh, Sylvain Belmar, and then this one is going to be Paul Davies. He's also talking about kind of a mentorship situation. Paul was originally on episode 95 talking about the uh, Lynn Ramsey film, You Were Never Really Here. When I was in uh, doing my graduation film in the National Film and Television School here in the UK, at that time, we're talking about 25 years ago, within the National Film School, there was very much the aesthetic was towards a certain naturalistic approach to sound. The gods were Bresson, Tarkovsky, Bergman, Hollywood sound design. 
I'm using Hollywood in quotation marks, was sort of frowned upon, sound calling attention to itself, overt sound design, was probably sort of something more suitable for animation perhaps more than the, and the films that were lauded were films that had direct sound, quite subtle, minimal sound effects. My graduation film was very different and I remember putting all the sound design, spending weeks in the studio, those days manipulating 16-track uh, and quarter-inch tape and I had all this sort of very heightened psychological sound which I just hear the voices of my fellow students not approving and uh, there was this tutor who came in a visiting tutor um, Tom Priestley who's an editor and he came in and I showed it to him and I respected him as an older editor a very experienced editor and I showed him what I've been doing because I was nervous about it I thought it was too I said is this too much Tom he said no this is great and he started relating and I and I hadn't realized this his experience of sound editing Roman Polanski's Repulsion. And he told me about that and the, the techniques they'd used on Repulsion. And I suddenly thought, I have permission, authorization to do this. I have approval, direct line from, <laughs> from something, you know. I, perhaps I shouldn't have needed that, but it was validation. So that's a moment that stands out for me. And yes, this is, I'm on the right path. How important to get validated by, by somebody that, that you look up to in the industry? It's, it's funny how much you don't give yourself permission to do things sometimes until other people tell you it's okay. Um, I do that a lot when I'm working with voice actors. I'm not an actor, but so often I tell them to give themselves permission to, you know, give me everything that they need to give me, especially, you know, people that are coming up or when I'm doing their demos and we're doing that kind of stuff. It's super, super important to, to validate people that, that look up to you, for sure. I've had so many, I, I, it's interesting, I, I consider myself mentored by every great director I've worked with. I'm sure all of us have, you're not paying attention if you're not taking away something special from every experience you have on a film. Um, each, each filmmaker brings some unique perspective that you didn't have before. Um, my, I, I decided, my first job was as a cartoon editor at Hanna-Barbera, and I was just uh, working stiff. I just, I didn't know anything about sound design or that this was even a career somebody could have until I saw Star Wars. Uh, and then I, and, and I realized the light bulb went off. Um, that's what I want to do. And I discovered it was this gentleman named Ben Burt, and he had designed and recorded all these sounds. And he became my sort of guitar, I mean, my, well, guitar god. I have guitar gods because I'm a guitarist, but he was now my film sound god. And um, as fate would have it, three years later, I, I had the opportunity to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I had great moments with Ben, albeit few, where he would sit me down and we'd talk about what I had done on the reels I had been working on. And he was extraordinarily supportive. Even when I did things that he maybe didn't anticipate or hadn't ordained, um, but he liked the sort of the pluck that I had that, and I, that I had taken initiative. And so, yes, of course, it's, 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 um, it's essential to have a mentor that gives you positive feedback and puts you, points you in a direction that uh, leads to some, some new creativity. Renee, who would you say your mentor was? I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird with me because I'm out here in the middle of the world. Um, and so, you know, Roy, my boss, you know, he, he hired me and, and did a lot of, of teaching of, you know, how to not screw things up. But in a broader sense, I was kind of left into my room to my, be my own devices and, and also to a large degree to, um, to kind of be my own critic for a long time. 
Um, and so it's a, a kind of on the creative side, especially on the sound design side, I've been swimming on my own since the beginning. I, I don't feel like I have had the luxury of having a, a, a strong mentor constantly on top of me, um, evaluating and critiquing the, the sound design creative work I'm doing. I've, I've had Roy, you know, busting my chops on mixes, all, you know, from the beginning. <laughs> but um, hey, hey, Renee, I'm curious. Um, how, what's it like for you when you go see a film you've worked on in the theater? Are, are you able to be your own best critic, or do you get feedback from your peers when they see a movie you've worked on in the theater? And how does it's that really tough? How's that loop it's, work for you? It it it. it most of the time, I'd say the majority of the time, it's kind of not a loop. Um, I, 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 I have a few, I have a handful of people that I really, really trust with regards to what their opinions of things are. But a lot of those people are like Tim, um, and they don't get to see most of my work. And so it's, it's real easy for me to, to put some stuff out and have everyone be high-fiving me. And then I'm sitting there going, man, you know, that was cool, but I could have done this differently this time. It's, it's tough. I've, I've, I, I feel like I've done a lot of growing in the last several years since we started this podcast with regards to my self-analysis and my self-critique because I kind of have to do it on my own. Um, I have a coworker, um, Brad, and he's been the guy that I really do um, bounce a lot of stuff off of now because I, I really trust his his ear and I trust his aesthetic. And it's 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 uh, it's been important um, to find somebody in my in my vicinity, <laughs> you know? Because um, I'm in a unique situation out here. I had a really weird memory just a couple days ago that kind of ties into this area of mentorship. He wasn't a mentor for me, but I, one of the first series that I mixed for television was a show called Loving Spoonfuls. And the idea was this guy, this very charismatic young man, went to uh, old folks' homes and got uh, grandmothers to teach them his favorite, re their favorite recipes from their old country. Uh, it was a very low budget show, but the concept was good. But every once in a while, we would have to do ADR for it. And he would come in for screenings and I would always mix the ADR too low because I wasn't confident in it. It didn't ever mm -hmm. feel right to me. So my internal way of dealing with it was I'll try and slip it by by making it a little lower. No one will hear it if it's... And he, he sat me down once, and he had, he had no reason to do this. He had no vested interest in my career or anything. And he was just like, you're trying to cheat, and you can't cheat on this show. This is my show. He, had been, he, he was an award-winning editor in Canada. He'd worked on some big shows. And this was his first director job. And he's like, this is my show. You can't cheat. And I'm not going to let you skate on this. So don't just try and lower it and think I won't notice. Like, you got to do it right. <laughs> and then he'd go away for 45 minutes and I'd have to get it back and make it right. And uh, he did that to me on a couple other occasions. And that was a real eye-opening thing where, like, I'm doing, I'm making real work here. This isn't school anymore. I, I got to actually do it right. And uh, at the time, I was kind of pissed off at him, to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, I was like, no, he did the right thing. And I just learned a lot by uh, getting through that uh, grinder. Yeah. Yeah, I still kind of <laughs> struggle with that when I'm mixing. When, like, uh, another mixer walks in the room, I'm always like, I kind of, sometimes I just, ah, oh, find an excuse to stop mixing and, like, do something else. Because it just <laughs> makes me nervous. I but I know I have to, like, I have to work against that tendency and just be like, this is what I'm doing. If you have something you want to say about it, say it. I'm open to the criticism, which I am. I'm always open to the criticism, but I still struggle with that. Like, I'm just waiting for them to hear me make a mistake, basically. Yeah. I would say, though, that the, 
it's a great luxury to have somebody that you trust to come and put an ear on stuff and even to watch your your techniques because what's happened to me in the past is I'll get a client in the room behind me and they'll be like, I want more, I want bigger, I want I want you to do this. And I'll be like, I'm throwing the kitchen sink at this man. I've got babies screaming, I've got tornadoes, I've got everything, and you and you want me to crank it up six more notches. I and I will have not figured out in my brain how. Um, and if if I had somebody there that was like, no man, mute all of that stuff and make this thing happen, then I wouldn't have to learn that lesson in the room with the director behind me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Teresa, you said something really interesting. Um, well, I have, and maybe we all have, you know, hi, my name is Mark. Uh, I'm a sound editor. Uh, I have what in psychology they call imposter syndrome. I, I, I'm deathly afraid that I've managed to trick everyone for 43 years. And so last week I began to mix, uh, I'm supervising the, the sound on this film and I'm mixing it as well. And that we um, brought in my, the dialogue mixer was a well-known and highly regarded a sound supervisor um, that I love, but all of a sudden I got nervous because one of my own was in the room. I've never been terrified to present my work to the biggest and best directors in the world, but when I had one of my own in the room, I thought, what's he gonna think of, of my <laughs> sounds? What's he gonna think of my work? And I was terrified. Is that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, but we all go through it. It's, there's no avoiding it. For sure. Yeah, 43 years in and you're still doing it. That's almost, that's almost depressing, actually. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, uh, it's um, tiny exercises in courage when you're just yeah. able to just say, whether I'm doing this right or whether I'm doing it wrong, I'm the one who's doing it and I have to put it out there and, and just not be afraid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or be afraid and do it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've played guitar all my life and I've performed not very often, but I've always had a mantra before I go on stage, which is, I am a guitarist, I am a guitarist, I am a guitarist. <laughs> and I do the same thing when I go to the first day of a mix or a spotting session. I'm, 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 I'm racked with insecurity and I say to myself, I am a sound editor, I am a sound editor, I really do do this. <laughs> so Mark, when you take somebody under your wing, like... Um what are you looking for in the person? How are you trying to teach them? You know, um, I think I'm looking for someone who um, has a sort of very broad set of, of storytelling skills. I am, the last thing I'm looking for is technical skills. You know, someone who knows plugins or someone who, someone who knows the keyboard shortcuts and Pro Tools. Um, those are way, way, way down on the list. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who, I think like all of you three, like you're out in the field, kind of like what Ethan talked about, that, that magic moment when you're, you're recording one thing and you hear another thing. It's like, oh, what was that? Turn it over there. And you capture something and you're, you're all giddy with excitement. I can't wait to get back to the cutting room because I'm going to use this for the, you know, the transporter beam or some silly thing like that. You know, I'm looking for that kind of crazy enthusiasm for sound. You know, a person who genuinely gets excited about hearing you know, a blender <laughs> and realizes what that could be. It's, what do you think about what Paul was sort of saying about people being cine literate, like people who uh, know their film history really well and come from kind of uh, like sort of know a lot about art, know a lot about oh, film, right. know a lot about music? Well, 
I must say, I have an immense amount of jealousy for filmmakers, as well as sound designers, who are cine-literate. But, but to me, that's like 10% of the package. If you're cine-literate, it means on the film you're working on, being creative because it's a, a, a call back to something clever in another movie is only good for the other cine-literates in the room. So uh, in a way, to be beholden to that is to kind of marginalize the audience or kind of restrict your audience to maybe a wider palette of things that you could do. Uh, it, it's for me, um, ultimately, we, we need to be storytellers first. Don't create, the, you know, these sort of self-imposed ideas of cine literacy and other things um, are a way of maybe restricting how we might approach telling a story. And that's where we have to get to first. To go off on a tangent from that, something that I really picked up from when you were talking to Paula Fairfield and Nia Hansen was pointing out that they each have their own projects that they are in charge of. So Nia is a writer and Paula is a, uh, is a painter, I guess. And so when you're doing that kind of stuff, when you have your own projects, because when we're doing sound for, for TV and film and other kind of stuff like that, we're, we're collaborating. It's not our vision. We're sitting there serving the serving someone else's vision for the most part. And in order to make our own creative decisions and, and develop our own creative tastes, sometimes it really does help to have our own projects that we're running on our own. Um, I see this particular podcast does something like that for me. Um, I do some other kind of writing and, 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 you know, I release sound effects libraries and that kind of stuff too. And so those things are things that no one else is calling the shots, but me. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of get to make, make my own decisions there. I, I feel like having, Having another outlet that feeds into what you're doing in a, in a broad creative sense really, really does help when you're sitting there deciding what sound to cut in. You know, it's, uh, Renee, kind of jumping off of what you just said, I find that my, my success has come as a consequence of my ideas. And I find that I, I am hired for my point of view. And I am hired and paid to bring that point of view. Right. I, I think that's often forgotten in that natural sort of stage fright fear we all get of presenting an idea to our filmmakers. Uh, yet I know that the greatest filmmakers are hungry to hear what I have to say or we have to say. That's why they hired us. They want that unique perspective and they want that pushback, um, you know, that you know, when they have an idea, they want you to be at least the one person who says, interesting idea, but what about this? Because yeah. ultimately that's true collaboration. And that's what filmmaking is all about is collaboration. Well, and so it's, it's so important to develop a point of view, right? And, to, and, and, you know, my thought was that by doing my own individual projects, that helps me develop a point of view that I can bring to a collaborative yeah. process. Yes, um, Absolutely. Well, it also keeps your brain healthy. I think you know yeah. that intuitively. Uh, pursuing other creative interests makes a, sort of a more elastic kind of brain. So let's uh, move on to our next clip. This one is going to be uh, Nina Hartstone and John Warhurst, who uh, just won the Oscar, actually, for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, they were on our show in episode 94. And uh, here's a clip of them talking about one of their greatest moments of their career. Now, I think being in the final mix with Brian May and Roger Taylor and to, to have them sort of be so kind of pleased with the end result. A, I couldn't believe that I was actually in a studio with Queen um, to start with, but, but to have them pleased about, about the results that we'd created uh, was, was, yeah, that, that, that really was amazing. 
I think maybe when Brian May walked into the room, might have been one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Brian loved Nina. I, he. We did a session doing all right with the original singer Tim Staffel, and we and Nina was there because we we wanted to make sure we got a good match to picture. You had a very good comment, and um, Brian was he 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 was so thankful that that Nina had come to the session. I think he he forgot about everybody else at the session and just and was just so pleased that Nina had been there to make that make this one comment she made, which did actually improve uh, Tim's performance and made it match the the screen the screen uh, performance we were trying to match to. It was basically about taking a breath at a particular moment in between in the phrase of the song, just so that it matched his lips better. That was all. It was just a, a an ADR comment, really. And that's but, how you won Brian May's. Brian heart. May noticed. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. So that's kind of a cool story about something really small, like just having them take an extra breath, and that made all the difference in the world to in this case, Brian May, but uh, directors and such like that. And it's sometimes it isn't the huge sound effect explosion moment. It's the little tiny detail that you can put in that changes everything. My, my good friend and uh, uh, Academy Award winning mixer, Chris Jenkins, um, likens um, the, the work that we do to what um, goes into making a, a, a pointillist painting. You know, a pointless painting is made up of thousands and thousands of tiny little dots of color or not color, and every one of them has a significance. And so it's the attention to that minute detail that makes a greater whole, I think, is it, that is something worth pursuing. The, the thing about that whole episode that, that stuck out to me, I mean, the whole process of what they did for that film is the links that they went to to get every single moment. I mean, playing playing the whole concert back for the extras over and over again and catching every single reaction and, and getting the whole crowd to sing in sync with every single live shot of that, of that final concert um, is, a, is a massive effort of a lot of people. And, and it's what, it was 100% in the name of sound. Um, and it was very inspiring to me to see that and, and then to sometimes measure my own efforts <laughs> on things against what people are actually doing out there. Well, you know, it's funny, back to something, um, I think it was either Sylvan or Paul Davies was talking about, about sound calling attention to itself. You know, often, you know, we call ourselves sound designers or sound artists or, you know, whatever, there's many titles we like to take. And I suppose in that, we presume that our job is this, this additive process, that sound design is something you add to what you already have. And, and I, I want to maybe dispel that a little bit. It, it sort of ties into that idea of sound calling attention to itself. Often, some of the best decisions are the, are, are the ones made to not have something. Um, you know, the, we shouldn't be seen as the, the cats who bring in the rumble and the mm -hmm. screechy sounds, you know, the, the sounds that draw attention to themselves. Um, we should be, we, we, we should always have a sound aesthetic. We should be sound aesthetes in that at every moment in a project, we should be the, the voice that says, here's the way that moment should work. And it works with X, Y, and Z, or X and Y, or Z and X. And, and to, to make that point, you always have to be remembering that what's, it's what's on the screen that is most important. It's not your work or the thousands of hours you spent recording those pig, you know, screeches. It's because <laughs> right. you might actually, as I have done, said at that moment, 
nope, doesn't work. And you got to swallow it and say, this is what the movie needs. But in, in a way, it doesn't, what it really is, is sort of getting in touch with your inner artist. In a way, we all have to pretend like we're the director and say to ourselves, what should this scene, how should this scene work? Simple question. Not how should sound work, how should this scene work? All right, what supports it? Yeah. A lot of times when we've had guests on, we've asked them what kind of sound supervisor they are. Are they the kind that sits up on the board between the mixers or do they sit in the back of the room and wait for the mixers to come up with their version and then make comments? And I think that the answer that we've got most often is that as people's experience grew, they became more and more the person at the back of the room that let the people do their work and then came in. And I found with my own career... That's something that I took a long time to learn. When I first was cutting sounds and then I would see what the mixer was doing, I was like, no, 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 no. This sound is the most important sound at this moment. Go play that. And now I just sit back at the back of the room and when they play back, if it works, it works. And I'm happy if they, you know, took out the sound that I really, really loved. If it works, you know, I couldn't hear what the music was doing. So let the music play there. But that's definitely something that takes a while to let your... I don't know if ego is your thing. Yeah, it's an ego. You got to let your ego down a bit to let the greater good prevail. I like those moments in the mix where you've got, I don't know, our mixes are a little smaller, but like maybe two or three people in the room and uh, everything's up or things are coming up and, and everybody like has that look on their face like, oh, yeah, no, you're going to take that down. You're going to put that in. Uh, yeah, we're all in agreement. We're all in agreement of what needed to happen right there. And I always kind of like that moment. It's like, how could we all have had the same idea at the same time? But we're all like, that's correct. It's just kind of a neat thing when that happens. Yeah, sometimes the picture tells you what it needs. Like, you just do what the picture tells you. Yeah, and it's not till everyone is sitting there looking at the screen in that one moment where you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, let's just do that. And everybody is in agreement. It's fascinating to me that, 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 uh, that kind of alchemy that occurs on the mixed stage I have a fairly large design studio with a 20-foot screen and a projector and a console and all the toys at my disposal. And yet even in that environment, when I go to a dub stage and, you know, you're on an 80-foot screen or whatever it is at a big dub stage, it's a di- it all of a sudden feels different and new ideas crop up. What, what is that? Has anybody <laughs> analyzed that? Like somebody's watching and it makes it makes a difference or other other people are watching and somebody and it makes a difference to your own perception, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely you suddenly see it through someone else or hear it through someone else's ears. I was going to say see it through someone else's eyes, but I guess both. I'm more referring to this this jump in size. The size of ah, the screen yes. seems to, for me, psychologically impact how I'm receiving all that information and it changes my point of view. I'm just curious about that. Have you experienced that? I've experienced that for sure. For sure. And a lot of what I do is for um, sporting events, right? So I do things for the Dallas Stars. And so I'll be in my little room and I'll, I'll make everything kind of bang and crash and do all this cool stuff. And then we'll go and I'll go stand in the middle of 18,000 people and we'll all go watch it on the Jumbotron at the same time. And that's different <laughs> when you, when you <laughs> yeah. do that. Um, How fun. And... And sometimes it's the best thing in the world and I'm just up over the roof. And sometimes I see one thing and I'm like, ooh, I did that just wrong. <laughs> don't, don't you just hate that? <laughs> yeah, now it's, now it's stuck. That's, that was the one time anyone's going to see it. So 
were there moments like that when you're doing Blade Runner when something just totally shocked you with the size of it and when you when you moved onto the stage? That that movie sticks out just as such a big film to me. Um just with regards to the scope of what the sound was doing and how much room it was given. Well, you know, that's a testament to Denis Villeneuve. When we came on the film, and stop me if I said this in the last interview, but Denis' first words to Theo Green and I were, my co-sound designer, um, compose with sound. He had an intention, two intentions, one, to build the sound of the film during the edit, which is non-traditional, uh, so that the sound informed the edit. Not music, I'm talking about sound. Uh, such that if we could achieve um, a, a, a sense that sound carried a moment along with the drama and the script and the acting, we wouldn't need music in X, Y, and Z spots in the film. So we, by the time the composers received the film from us, from, the, from Joe Walker, the film editor, we had a pretty complete track and Theo and I had a pretty good idea of what this movie was going to sound like, such that they could then achieve objective number two. And that was have the blends or the, the scenes between music and sound be unrecognizable. So that it all felt like, and I use this term one soundtrack, what we had was simply the sound of Blade Runner. It wasn't music, it wasn't sound effects, it was just, that was the sound of that universe. And I think we achieved that through Denise's uh, collaboration and encouragement to use sound evocatively and sort of narratively in a way. And in many moments of the movie where you would expect there to be score, we were doing it with sound. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that, that gives us some pretty free, free reign. Um, Early, my early experiments on Blade Runner were done divorced from picture. Uh, and I, because Denis had said compose with sound, I went off and designed kind of sonic landscapes that were true, more like, you know, musique concrète perhaps. Uh, they were tonal, not sometimes melodic, but not particularly, but certainly in that sort of netherworld of, well, it's not a sound effect, it's not music, it's just Blade Runner. That's what I was trying to create. And I made it this huge palette of sounds. And then I took the entire film, and it was three hours 45 at that time, and I kind of splashed sound on this empty Pro Tools canvas like a Jackson Pollock painting and just watched what happened where these random sounds that weren't designed for any specific sync moment, where they landed and how they operated and what, what they evoked. And I kept the things that worked and I tossed out the stuff that didn't. And that began to form the basis or the foundation for the sound that we would add later on. That's wild. So did you just roll off a dub of that or, or like? Well, it was all in a Pro Tools session. I would, I would fill a region list with a hundred sounds that Theo and Dave Whitehead and I had made. All extemporaneous, flowing, ambient, musical, melodic, tonal stuff. Sometimes these cues were 10 minutes long because we were improvising on samplers or keyboards or whatever, you know, uh, um, just creating weird ambient soundscapes. And I just grabbed something from the region list and kind of like my um, uh, uh, Wheel of Fortune library browsing, um, I would kind of blindly grab a sound. I didn't remember what it was, if it was shrieky or rumbly or musical or pretty or dark or angry, and I would drop it somewhere on the timeline, blindly, like a, I was literally thinking Jackson Pollock. I didn't, 
I just wanted lobs of sound to land somewhere, and then I wanted to react to that. So I would watch how that 10-minute weird composition landed somewhere in the three hours. I would watch that and think, what did that do to that scene? Did it work with it? Did it work against it? Did it work because it worked against it? Great, that means something. I just unlocked a clue to that scene that I didn't have before because I created a heretofore unknown connection that I didn't have. Okay, that's pretty good, but you know what it needs. All right, I'm gonna grab another thing and I'd throw it on the canvas, the, pro, the empty Pro Tool. And it was literally a three hour Pro Tool session uh, and things were just landing on tracks. And I'd start trimming and editing and EQing and reverbing. And before you knew it, over the course of about a month, I had shaped an abstract canvas that was three hours and 45 minutes of Blade Runner. And they hit on some reels, one little 10 second moment. Other reels, entire 10 minute swaths covered with this sound. And then I would play those for Denis and get his sort of, you know, his reaction, his narrative uh, um, reaction to that stuff. And we, then we'd sculpt some more. Were you starting and stopping or did you watch the whole thing down? Oh, we'd always, we, we could never digest the whole movie at once. It, yeah, just, it, it seems bit. like it would be almost self-hypnosis if you did No, we'd always, we'd always watch just scenes together, really. Yeah, but as far as when you were doing your creative process, though, when you, when you had the whole film in front of you and you just, and you and you I start... never watched it. No, I, it, this is part of my process. Um, I had watched the film and once, and then I wanted to go with gut instincts because you only get gut instincts once you get one shot at that. Like you only yeah. get to watch the movie once and be honest, have an honest reaction to it. So I watched the movie in its entirety and then sat down without looking at anything and started making my impressions of the movie. Gotcha. That's great. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm a do that. definitely <laughs> different way of working than I'm used to. I wish I could do that. No, I guess I'm going to maybe. Maybe I'll try that on the next one. Well, you know, look, uh, look I, I, I don't get that kind of opportunity that often. And that, sure. that technique doesn't lend itself to very many movies, For sure, quite yeah. honestly. Which is to say, um, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to find an approach like that. I'll probably never take on the Jackson Pollock approach ever again. But the next movie, I will approach it wondering, what is my, what's my style here? What's my approach? What's, what's the, how do I, here's an, an important concept for me. Um, I recognize that, especially when I look at my sound library, the, the universe is at my disposal. But if, if you allow that to be the case, you become immediately overwhelmed. You have to define a universe. You have to create some kind of parameters around which you are gonna work. Otherwise, you can't function because there's too many options. So uh, that was one that I had used on, uh, you know, on Mad Max. When I saw Mad Max, complete, I took a literary approach. The first thing I thought of when I saw Mad Max was Moby Dick because I saw the war rig as the great white whale and mm -hmm. I saw a Morton Joe as Ahab chasing the whale. That gave me all the narrative fodder I needed to find sonic metaphors along the way. It was my little, my, my guide uh, to point me in the right directions when I, when I had creative roadblocks. I think that comes back to what Teresa was saying before about being um, artistically broad enough to have other influences that you can draw on as you're doing your work though. If you've read Moby Dick, then you can make that, then you can make that connection. 
but but uh, Moby Dick is probably not the only um, um, allegory that you could use. There are other books that tell similar stories of the pursuit of a nemesis. Sure. It, I just happen to know Moby Dick, so you don't need to know Moby Dick or even be that. No, but you got to know something. You do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to be willing well, but, to to associate. It's about having an associative and an open mind faculty or whatever it's called. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's one of the fundamental components of creativity is free association. It's when the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You, you connect, you know, one disparate idea with another, and that fusion becomes something bigger than what it was, the, the, the two pieces themselves. And that's what I think that, that's what artists do. And that often that's, that's an association that only you can make. So I like kind of tie that to what you were saying is like you are the one who they're asking for ideas from because those are your connections that only you can make really well yeah we can't worry about what another sound designer might do in a moment all we can bring is what we want to do you 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 can worry yourself to death with what ifs yeah you just got you got to go with your gut and just stand back and ask if it's working yeah (laughs) okay let's go to another clip this one we're going to go to erica doll uh, Eric uh, was, as I, th- I think I mentioned earlier, when Ethan Vanderein on, he's been on three separate times. So he's been on number 35, number 74, and number 92. Uh, and he sent in a story about how emotionally connected he gets to the sounds he records for films that he works on. I did the very first season of Family Guy. That was one of my first years uh, being a sound effects editor. In the production with, you know, animators, writers, everybody, there's like dozens, if not hundreds, of people putting together the picture. But on the sound end, it was just like you could count on one hand how many people were putting the sound together. I kind of realized, like, wow, we've got this amazing power. Sound is half of the experience, and there's just like a handful of people putting it together. There's kind of an auteur feeling to it. And, you know, I'd been recording kind of, you know, since I was a kid, just collecting sounds kind of like a personal sonic diary. And I started, you know, just picking my favorite sounds that had the most kind of emotional power to me personally. And one of my favorite sound effects um, creators was, you know, my dog of almost 17 years, Freya. And I put her in every single thing I worked on from the very beginning until she passed away just a little over a year ago. To me, that's what's kind of amazing about sound is it's so personal and so intimate. It works, it's not in the frontal lobe, it just works in the deepest emotional part of your being. It's really special to have kind of this collection of sounds that are in movies that every time I hear them, it puts me right back to when I was there recording it. You know, and my dog Freya, she's going to live on immortalized in film um, as Bumblebee's emotive vocals, as a a Nazi dog in Valkyrie, as, you know, she's been all over the place. So, um, yeah, to me, I, I think that's one of the most special things about sound is how how truly personal it is. And I get emotional every time I think about it. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty good. Do you, do you have any sounds that you really connect that, to that you've used in films, Mark? Oh, hundreds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm as much a geek for recording in the field because they're an essential component of great audio. You know, you have to have new, just like a chef, chef would never create a great dish without the freshest ingredients. The soundtracks are no different. Um, 
but he reminded me, Eric reminded me of a story. Oh, um, Gary Rydstrom tells an interesting story. If he hasn't already told you this in an interview, when he lectures, he likes to ask the audience if they were given a choice to have only one thing to remember a deceased loved one by, would it be a picture or an audio recording? And he says, almost universally people choose the audio recording. And I, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm going to pretend to be one <laughs> um, because I think sound is so much more visceral. There's something about the way sound talks to our soul that, that, that imagery doesn't quite achieve it. It's, well, in, in fact, because it is visceral, it is actually moving things in your body and it's exciting things in your cochlea. We get a physical sensation from it. And I think that makes it that much more real or close to us. There's a fourth dimension thing, too, I think, because it happens over time. There's something that connects that ah, to a oh, feeling yeah. of reality. Oh, that's so yep. good, Teresa. I hadn't thought of that. I think that's, I had a, just a, a thing recently where I, I, my mom passed away a few years ago, and I just found this video on YouTube of her, do, she used to do some physical therapy stuff, and there's a little clip of, of somebody working on her. And she doesn't say very much in the video, but she, he kind of twists her around and she goes, oh. And it's just the way, you know, the way she said it. And, uh, and she had been very sick before she died. And, and um, so she didn't talk much. And uh, just hearing her voice from that healthier time where she just says, oh, in just that special way that she does it. And I was like, it could be yesterday. I was like, it was complete mm. freaking weird thing where it was just like, just like yesterday. And I think that's kind of like there's something going on in your brain there where it just ties you right back in time. Well, that's how your memory works, too. Your memory doesn't work in still images. You know, it works through motion ah. like that. Um, you know, my... My dad also passed away recently, and so my, I, you know, when we go when we go visit him, um, my sister, who is not an audio person at all, will break out the phone and play back some voicemails from him, um, and that's it's, it's for the same reason. And and I, you know, I guarantee you, we're not alone. I, I, you know, voicemails are of of people that you love that are no longer with you are uh, highly treasured by most, and it's mm. for that reason. Um, you know, back to your question, I don't know that I have any favorite sounds, but the sounds. Well, kind of like what Teresa was talking about. In the Gremlins movie, my first son was being born, and I hacked into a, a, a Doppler, one of those Doppler sonogram deals, and got an audio out. So I recorded uh, the sounds of him in utero, you know, his heartbeat and the blood rushing and all that stuff. And I used those sounds for um, all the Gremlins hatching in the pods. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's a yes. great sequence of... And, classic. you know, it, it made that it made that that I think that subconscious connection that we don't, you know, that we we immediately know, oh, something's gestating inside <laughs> right. of those things. So I, I love hearing that. And I sprinkle sounds of my kids throughout movies in, in Lion King. There's a, a, the baby, um, baby Simba. A lot of those utterances are my second oldest when he was born, like little baby coos and things like that. So th those always tickle me when I hear them. I love the idea of you showing up to the ultrasound with your recording kit. I did that. Well, yeah. I totally did that. I recorded it as well. Excuse me. I'm just going to. Yeah, I'll be doing this. I, they, I missed on that, but I recorded like that child like learning speech for a solid three years. When, when we first started the podcast, one of the first uh, kind of 
bigger names that we had on the show was Carl Anderson. I don't know if you know him, Mark. Uh, and he was, uh, unbeknownst to us when we were interviewing him for something else, he was uh, doing Noah, the uh, Darren Aronofsky film that came out uh, probably like 2013 now. And after we finished the record, he phoned me back to get the right address to send me the audio file. And I had like a two-week-old son at that point. And I was holding the child when Carl phoned. And he was like, how old is that child? And I said, he's newborn, he's brand new. Go down, record it right now and send me the files. I need that because in Noah, a baby is born and they needed brand new baby sounds. So yeah. my son is the sound, the, the crying of the baby in that film. Yes, and, that's uh, the way to do yeah, it. Yeah, I had to go. It's not I went, just any baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was there opening night when that film came out and... Uh, it's it's a big it's a it's a it was kind of a flop in reality, but in my family it's a huge hit. <laughs> Grandma and Grandpa watch it all the time. <laughs> I did a movie a long time ago, a, a comedy called Three Men and a Baby, and yeah. I had to oh, yeah. uh, record a lot of baby sounds. And I pestered all my friends who had newborns, uh, and I recorded them. But the way to do it was I bought a you know Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. I bought hand puppets. And I pulled off their noses and put foam in their place so that I could, I put a Shep's Colette microphone <laughs> inside the nose of the Burt and Ernie. Nice. And that way I could get really close to the baby because heretofore they'd see like the big gag ball and they'd just shut up. But when they saw these cute little puppets, not knowing I had a little microphone concealed inside of it, uh, I could gesticulate and, and, and tickle them and get, get the best sounds very, very, very close up. There you go. That's, That's the genius. top secret knowledge you get from Mark Mangini. That really is brilliant. <laughs> Bert and Ernie puppet microphones. <laughs> genius. Okay, we're going to go to our last uh, set of clips. Well, kind of second last set of clips. This is Mildred Iatru Morgan and Eiling Lee. And they uh, were on uh, our show for episode 90 when they came in to talk about First Man. And this is a couple clips of them talking about how uh, they get a super satisfied when they get the approval of a director. When I review scenes back for the filmmakers, say the picture editor or the director, and you know I happen to be sitting behind them, and I play the scene back for them for the first time with uh, the sound in there, and sometimes you could see the head like not all like they stare at each other and make like a really surprising face or be really excited about the sequence all over again. It's almost like seeing them who has actually been watching the same sequences over and over and over again for you know, many weeks without the sound that we have and finally hearing the sequence with the sound in there it's almost like their reaction almost feels like as though they've seen the scene for the, for the first time. Working with Damien Chazelle he is always very meticulous tons and tons and tons of notes and you know always takes many 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 numerous revisions to get things right after every playback he may go oh this is wrong you know it needs to be this it needs to be that you know sometimes um he watch it and he's stopped the scene and he turned around and he would say that is so fucking awesome so moments, moments like that kind of make my day um for me uh that's always very rewarding so now we got Mildred. I don't know if it's an actual moment, but I think it was when I learned how to climb into the mind of the director and figure out what does the director really want here? And then 
blend my sensibility with the director's sensibility and come up with something and have the director say, you know what I want. So for example, during First Man, there were times when Damien had so much to do and there were things like with casting, with the loop group people, or um, choosing takes or whatever, I would normally work with him, but he said, Millie, I don't have time for this, but I know you know what I like, so go for it. So it's moments like that where I feel really happy and I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Ah, uh, getting the director's approval, it feels so good. <laughs> Especially after you've been kicked five times by them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that look, we all want an attaboy. That's, that's yeah. just human nature, and uh, I suppose we have to fight the the urge to try to to, to try to uh, play for it. Um, it. It might, you know, you want to be as honest as you can in your sound preparation. You're not doing it for the attaboys, but they're great when they come. <laughs> yeah, I like what Mildred's saying. Uh, you don't hear all of that in the clip. I think she is saying, yes, I want to kind of emulate what the director wants, but she's also talking about her own sensibility and and trying to find the meeting place. And I guess that's a, that's a very tricky equation. We all have had the moment when we've run our work for the filmmaker, you know, you've just played back the reel or the commercial or the, the video game or whatever you work on, and the lights come up and you're ready to take notes. And um, all too often that process is one of controlled negativity. It's, this is what was wrong here, this was what was wrong here, this was what was wrong here. Um, one of the great joys of working with George Miller as well as Denis Villeneuve is that they turned that for the first time on its head for me because they would also give what I call love notes. You would, you, you know, they'd say at two minutes 35, I think we have to lower the explosion but at five minutes 15, those ambiences in Wallace Corporation, fantastic. So you'd get a note that was telling you you did well, not that there was something that needed to be repaired. God bless them for that. <laughs> I wish more filmmakers would take heed of that. <laughs> right? So as you, as, you know, when, you're, when you're interacting with directors on that level and you're trying to find the voice of a film, how do you, how do you decode um, some, of the, some of the thoughts and notes that are coming at you on the front end as you're, as you're trying to find the voice of where you're at? Well, it's a twofold process of, of trial and error. You know, I'm going to assume that I understand everything that they said the first time they say it to me until such time as I present what I thought they meant and they said, no, 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 <laughs> that is not what I meant. Oh, you know what? When you told me this, I read it as that. So next week, I'm coming back. This is going to be different. This is going to be great. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a bit of a dance that goes on for a week, a month, or whatever, uh, as you develop. You know, it's kind of like dating, really. You, you know, <laughs> you, you, know you, you, you think you're reading your partner pretty well, and we're all adults, and 90% of our first impressions will be correct, but there's that 10% that aren't, and you make some mistakes, and you'll, and, and your filmmakers understand that. They know you're not perfect either, and they want to get to a common language, and that's why smart directors uh, come back to you, because 
Uh, you know, you, we've all heard it a million times. We, we have a shorthand, I'm putting that in air quotes, because you've developed it through hardship on the first project. <laughs> Thank God we got that out of the way. We got all our, you know, oh, you leave your socks in the bathtub. Oh, wait a minute, I don't like the way you squeeze the toothpaste. We got all that out of the way in the first six months of dating. Now we can concentrate more on the important aspects of our relationship. Um, so, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty aggressive at the beginning of a project because I'm always, I've read a script and I'm brimming with ideas. So I'm going to, I'm going to come into a first meeting and throw a whole bunch of ideas at a director right off the bat, because I want to, I, I want to get some strikeouts right away. I, I want to swing and miss right away before I spend a lot of time on, a, on an idea. So I'll present 10 crazy ideas and, and the filmmaker might knock down two or three or four or five of them, or maybe all of them. And then I can go back and realize, oh man, he and I are not seeing this movie the same way. I gotta reorient. I didn't see this movie this way. That's kind of part of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, just, uh, just reps and trial and error as much as you can on the front end. Yeah, but look, um, after 43 years, um, I, you know, I wear all my mistakes as scars on my body. So all those scars inform the, 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 the parries I'm going to make with my sword. So uh, I don't say this egotistically, but at 43 years in, my first blush ideas are probably going to be pretty close because I, I asked the dumber questions 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and I know not to go down a certain kind of road with a certain kind of filmmaker. And it doesn't hurt, by the way, before an interview to go study that filmmaker's work. Go watch and listen so that when you come in, I can tell you filmmakers are so impressed when you can tell them what you think their style is because they just love that you actually cared and went and listened and then you wanna talk about that. That makes them feel like, this guy, I'm important to this person. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. I had a situation with the playback with the director many years ago that is not directly related to what we're talking about, but it, I was going over it with the other person that was in the room at that time the other day, so it's fresh on my head. The director, it was an animation, and in it there was a very small creature with wings, and uh, we had designed sounds, really high-pitched sounds, and the director was an older man, and he came in and he sat down, and we played it for him, and he was like, well, you got to put sounds for all of the creature there. And he, he just lost all the high end of his hearing and he couldn't hear what we had done. But I didn't realize that immediately. So I was just like turning it up. <laughs> like I was like, oh, you, okay, we'll make it louder then. And that did not help at all. It, it was not getting to him in any way. And then we were like, oh, okay. And uh, we basically ended up going with our first iter iterative? Iteration. 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 We, uh, and, but yeah, it was a bizarre couple minutes where we were just like what do you mean it's right there everybody else in the room could hear it perfectly fine so how did he that director get around hearing it if you stuck with it and he couldn't hear it did he think there was a hole in your track <laughs> well we added some other sounds that he liked a bit but for the most part it was trust that's fantastic yeah well done that's an attaboy <laughs> you get an attaboy exactly. Tim. <laughs> that's a weird one yeah Okay, so we're going to uh, play one short clip. Uh, someone that you know well, I think, Mark Mangini, uh, Dave Whitehead, sent oh, in... I wanna... Oh, he's the best. We were talking earlier about kind of mentorships and getting uh, the attaboy a little bit. Dave Whitehead might have been the attaboy for this podcast, eh, Renee? 
Like we absolutely. Yeah, we had done probably twenty episodes. Like it says in my notes, probably which episode. So he was on. He was on episode twenty-seven, and he was the first kind of big name that we had on the show, and uh, we had a lot of fun in the interview. He is a wonderful guy, and we just got along with him really well. And I feel like when that interview was done, I don't know if you felt the same way, Renee, but I was just like, we can do this. Like, we can really make some noise here. And then we started going after, uh, like, instead of just staying within our friend group and uh, social media group, we started going after names that, uh, well, like yourself, Mark. Uh, So Dave Whitehead means a lot to this podcast. I think that's fair to say. And I asked him to send in a clip. And everybody else's clip is like a minute, two minutes. He sent in 22 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think he does anything half-assed. I think he's all Never. in. Or he, yeah. So we're going to play Never. a one-minute clip now and then just quickly talk about it. And then uh, after we wrap up, we're going to play the entire 22 <laughs> minutes unedited because uh, it's it's an awesome... Uh, listeners, go get a cup of coffee and, and sit down and just pretend like you're hanging out with Dave Whitehead. So first, we'll just play the one-minute clip here. We've got um, films coming up in the future that I know I'm working on and... Uh, when they're kind enough to send me visual cues or visual information or concept art. That's a real joy too because you get involved in the process of making the film. You become a filmmaker, not just not just the end of the chain, um, to become part of the film early. It, it means more to you that way, I think. Um, the thing I always have to remember, and um, I get quite emotional thinking about it sometimes, is that um, you know, directors and producers, they entrust you to come on board to you know, create that other dimension to their film, you know, bring that sound world to life. And it's a gift, it's a, it really is. You've got to honor that thing that they've given you. Sounds all very deep and meaningful, but it should be. I mean, you're, you're trying to find the emotion in the film, you're trying to find a rhythm in the pictures, you're trying to find space where you can. You know, it's nice when they allow you to actually let the thing breathe to me is still what matters and is still what brings the joy for me for a film there he is it's good to hear his voice again that's just beautiful he's one of the great sound designers and sound supervisors of the world i've collaborated with him on i think five films and it's been a joy and you know he's so right um i'll tease you a little bit um dave and i are going to work together along with theo green to design uh, Denis Villeneuve's new movie about a movie that has a lot of sand in it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Hmm, what could you be referencing? <laughs> and um, uh, Denis has been engaging Theo and I since the script phase. He, he's shared uh, conceptual artwork and um, early, you know, uh, pre-vis, storyboards, things of that nature. And they're, they're shooting now, and we're getting to see early dailies and all of that is, we don't come on for another three or four months, but all of that is kind of fermenting in, in our brains uh, such that we, ha- we will have a very, very clear grasp of the, the, the style and the type of movie he's making by the time we hit the ground to start creating sound. And, and David will be working on it with us, and I have been sharing all that early work so that he too can be, you know, it makes you feel like they, we're trusted. We are part of the filmmaking team. I, I have a, a director that I work with regularly, Gavin O'Connor. I'm on a, a film currently with him, and he's rung me when, while he's writing the script and asked me 
or pose the question, Mark, I'm in this scene. Here's what's happening with these characters. I'm having trouble finishing this scene. Is there anything that sound can contribute that might add a component to this scene that helps make it more powerful? How great is that to be in the screenwriting, a contributor in the screenwriting phase? And Gavin continues that, I'm always involved in pre-production, I'm working with production sound, I'm designing sound during the edit, and then he always gives me a, a, a great uh, length of time to do a, a proper post. That's just really amazing that 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 someone's in in that headspace enough to uh, to call up um, you know to call up sound and to call on sound to help with the writing. Um, so some of the best scripts really do have a lot of sound notes in them for sure. Yeah, um, and how how intelligent to, to to start the collaboration that early. We've, uh, th this is not a new idea, but Gavin's just a very intuitive man. He's also brought, he brought the composer on during production. Not a, necessarily a new idea, but still a pretty novel idea, and certainly not one that's traditional or even accepted by the studios. And Gavin was even told by the studio, don't, it's not going to work, you're going to waste your time. And yet, since the very first assembly of the dailies, We've had music that Gavin's been digging and, and uh, wants in the movie, and that's informing the edit, and I'm designing against that. During, I'm not even on the project yet, mm -hmm. and we have score that is already landed and is in the movie, and it, it fits the movie so organically. I, I think we'll, we'll see this as a model moving forward. I hope so. You think that's a cure for the uh, tempitis that, that hits so many composers? It, it, it unequivocally, it absolutely eradicates tempitis because it's the composer you want and the music that they want to write. There's no room for somebody else's music. Yeah. Now, the, the flip side of that is you're on a project for that much longer and does your fee cover your, you know, your nine months of involvement instead of 10 weeks, you right. know, the traditional 10 weeks of composition time? Got to you have a choice to make. <laughs> kind of what we're talking about is like having at the very inception of the ideas to, to have people to start to think about sound and how they can bring that into the process earlier. And, and so I think that's kind of like partially why we do this podcast is to try and put that message out and uh, also make sound people feel like what you do is important, you know? For sure. Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. I Pleasure. think this is a really great talk, and uh, I got a lot out of it myself. I hope everybody else did, too. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim and Teresa and Renee. It's a, it was an honor to be with you guys. Thank you very much. So now we are going to throw to Dave Whitehead's epic 22-minute uh, stream of consciousness about the wonders and brilliance of working in sound. Take it away, Dave. <laughs> sort of been asked to talk about uh, what brings me joy in sound design or you know the the good parts of of the job and which are many I mean I, I guess you know if you go right back to the start when I first started off and you know I was working at um, the University of Waikato in, in Hamilton New Zealand and um, they put me in a little room with a Mac Plus and uh, you know Proteus and then a four track cassette recorder and um, uh, a Roland U20 and they said you know start writing music for these television uh, little university television productions and 
you know it was terrible stuff <laughs> I didn't know how to quantize things and I wasn't that good at you know working to click tracks and all that sort of thing and um you know it's not really sound design but it was sort of like um really good building blocks for me for starting to um put together sound colors and you know when I got given an Emacs 2 and uh sound designer the software when that first came out that was amazing but I remember just sort of at stages thinking, wow, I've got all this gear in front of me and I get to play with this. And it's a long way from sort of coming from my house where, uh, you know, mum helped me buy a, a four-track cassette recorder when I was um, coming out of high school. And um, it was just joy, just making sound, making music, uh, recording things, putting reverb on it, delay, flange, you know. So I was definitely attracted to that stuff very early on but it was more in the musical context and the sound part of it came later on but you know I think um you know it's really funny thinking back uh through your life and thinking you know how did I get into sound and and like I, I, I was always very conscious of sound I have to say you know like when I heard the Beatles back in USSR when I was a kid, maybe five, six years old, and that jet, the aeroplane at the front of the the song. I love that. It was amazing. Or the treatment on David Bowie's voice for the Laughing Gnome. Or I don't know. It's it's funny. I guess you know you just had an affinity for that sort of thing very early on. And you know, Dad would go fencing, and um, you know, he 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 worked as a lumberjack sometimes, or as a uh, out fencing on farms and hitting the the wires and the sounding like lasers and then along came Star Wars and I mean I'm sure for most people who work in sound the moment that that spaceship came through in Star Wars in the late 70s and that was an, a moment for me going wow the the best sonic thing I'd heard in my life and uh, I do have to say like the the folks at Skywalker over the years have constantly sort of delivered soundtracks that have really inspired me when I got my first feature film I'm just rambling here but yeah when I got my first feature film uh, it was called The Ugly and I actually I'd done some short films before that with my good friend David Lowndes we went into business together and um, our mums gave us ten thousand dollars each uh, to start this business theater sound productions and that was a huge deal because my mum didn't have money and it was sort of like she, my father had passed away and she gave us this money we paid it back by the way um but in the first year we earned five thousand dollars just <laughs> five thousand dollars for the two of us you know to survive and it was it was terrible but we had such fun and we were writing music for jingles we were we started doing short films for the um, university or the Polytech sort of uh, um, courses there and they'd have to make short films for their assignments and we decided it was a good idea to try and get in, in cahoots with them. And from there, and it's advice I give people nowadays too, it's like if you want to get into doing feature films, start working on short films because one of the 30, 40 short films that you work on, one of them might actually move ahead and start doing feature films. So, you know, um, that kind of proved true for myself anyway um, because I was offered the feature film my first film The Ugly as I was talking about before um, I remember getting told that I was going to get to be sound designer on this feature film I, I mean uh, 
and I just was I jumped for joy I was so so happy um, I had to move city from Hamilton to Auckland and that was a big deal for my family I've got two kids you know and uh, and it was hard to sort of upheave and sort of go up there um, but uh, that was a start of a new life really and um, you know started working as an effects editor slash sound designer on a lot of films um, up there um, but then the big the big thing for me really was being offered um, Lord of the Rings um, I got to work with Mike Hopkins um, uh, the late awesome Mike Hopkins um, he was dialogue editor slash one of the best violence editors I'd ever heard and vehicles as well he was an amazing effects editor uh, but anyway he, he we did this film called Heaven which was the director of The Ugly the first film I did it was his second film and um, uh, yeah really hit it off he, he sort of thought at the first who the hell's this cowboy coming in you know who's he think he is sort of thing but we hit it off and um, you know my thing's always been experiment and and um, just really trying to find something unusual for a soundtrack and um, yeah for that reason we, we hit it off it was really really cool um, and um, became a real life friend um, but um, anyway so he he ended up because he'd worked on Frighteners and all that sort of thing he ended up offering me a job on Lord of the Rings and that was just amazing for me it was a real turning point um, so we again uh, up and left Auckland and moved to Wellington um, but before that coming back to the whole joy thing I remember doing a short film and that was called um, Delph it's called Delph D-E-L-F digital, digitally engineered life forms uh, for James Cunningham and Paul Swaddell anyway when I went down to Wellington to um, yeah to mix it with Mike Hedges um, I was sort of in the coffee room sort of looking around and there were these sheets there these mix sheets and they happened to be from Frighteners and um, I, I, you know basically I'd been winging whatever I was doing up to that point and I, I sat there it was at lunchtime I think I was waiting for them to come back from lunch and I looked through these sheets of Randy Toms and those guys and and um, uh, and I finally got, you know, they, all of a sudden they had tires on one pre-dub and you go down and they had the engines. Oh my gosh, they split them. It was like a real revelation. I mean, I, I'd really not been taught by anyone to do any of this. We just sort of winged it and got told off when we turned up with the wrong stuff. Um, but, you know, you're sort of in New Zealand and there wasn't really an education option for me. Well, I, I don't know. I, I already started doing sound design um, uh, for for films and so it didn't seem like sh like I should go and do a course at that point but um, that was amazing like just in a few minutes looking at those sheets and I got it and it kind of really helped me understand how to lay out my material better for film um, I mean that was yeah uh, yeah so thanks Randy and co um, that was pretty cool um, but then, you know, listening to that film and watching it as well, and it's amazing how proud New Zealanders were of that sort of thing. You know, I don't know, I was anyway. I, I just thought, wow, this came out of New Zealand. and um, So it was cool to work with for Peter Jackson and sort of have that opportunity to work on his films. One of the coolest things that... Um, there were a few things about Lord of the Rings that I thought were really cool. Um, 
no, or number one, it was just an amazing playground. And getting to listen to David Farmer's sonic footprint uh, was a real, real treat. Getting to work with Chris Boys was a real treat. Meeting the crew that I'm working with now, you know, Brent Burge, Hayden Collo, Justin Webster, uh, Katie Wood, um, you know, Mel Graham, um, just just all that bunch of people, um, uh, life friends. And, you know, the, uh, um, they've all grown and some of them have gone to the States now. Um, and I think films, the main thing for me is the, the friends that you make. Um, you spend more time with them than you do with your family sometimes and that can be really hard Um, it's hard to be in sound sometimes because you spend so much time away from your family and your friends and that sort of thing Um, but yeah so you have to make that time count if you're going to be there you might as well be there giving your all Um, but yeah Uh, rambling rambling Um, where was it going Lord of the Rings yes um, so I actually quit the first Lord of the Rings, um, or I was offered to do it and I turned it down because I had, um, it was just, just some family things going on and it wasn't, it wasn't good. It was actually, my kids were young and I really wanted to spend more time with them. And so I ended up working from home on another show for a while. Um, but they got really stuck with what they were doing. They had so much to do and they offered me the first 10 minutes of Lord of the Rings and, um, it was a real treat. I mean, basically the first thing that rolled out um, uh, gratefully uh, was material that I'd worked on and it was the first time I'd mixed with Chris Boys, uh, rocked up and you know there's that big sub bender at the beginning when uh, Sauron uh, gets his finger chopped off and um, that was that was one of my best most fun sound moments ever. I, I think I drove Barry Osborne and his, <laughs> I think um, Carol Kim, his partner, was next door as well and must have driven her nuts playing the sub-bender over and over. Not because I was um, trying to tweak it anymore. I was just so happy with that sound. I thought it was really cool. Um, but that was, a, that, that was a real moment for me. And then I saw it with my family in Australia um, uh, at a cinema. I remember standing up and almost throwing my hands up in the air because it was such a cool sound. Um, so, you know, um, uh, what else? Helm's Deep. Um, Brent Burge and I, um, jammed through, I mean, Dave Farmer provided amazing material for the Orcs. I mean, he really did. He, he had a real handle on what they were meant to sound like and, you know, sea mammals and that sort of thing. And he provided an amazing palette. Um, for us to start with and then um, I, I got to chop all the orcs and I actually did a, an entire first pass on the two towers before the team started so I did a pass on ambience, pass on all the violence and did something like a three and a half hour version or something so that was pretty cool, Baptism of Fire um, and then uh, Brent and I got to do pretty much Helm's Deep together that battle and um, uh, that was fun. I mean, I'm very, very proud of Helm's Deep. Uh, uh, you know, right from the rain falling on the shoulders of those guys right at the beginning, that's the sound of the rain falling on the chimney um, of our house in Auckland. And, you know, uh, it's just those little sound things that you know are... Um, or, you know, when the orc gets shot with the arrow and he falls over and it's the sound of my coal bucket going... And, and you know, a dog 
sort of sound when, when he falls down. Um, yeah, it's pretty fun. You know, us guys all stomping on a whole lot of scaffolding um, sort of connecty bits to get the, the iron marching, all the orcs standing there with armour. And, you know, it's, it's such fun. Um, I learnt a lot from Ethan uh, van der Rijn and um, uh, Tim Nielsen um, uh, and yeah I mean Tim's ability his ambience I just thought was beautiful I just really I learned a lot sort of listening to what he did in the ambience department and Ethan was really giving with his knowledge and um, yeah he, he would always come and review my stuff and I guess you know um, I definitely consider him and uh, Mike Hopkins um, uh, real true mentors um, who really um, freely gave advice and you know that sort of thing but anyway um, blah 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 um, but yeah that joy of recording together you know going out and actually recording something fresh and new to me is still what matters and is still what brings the joy uh, for me for a film um, just the other day I was in Sydney um, for um, uh, my wife Shell's uh, dad's 70th and you know we're outside and the cicadas going off outside and I have to grab the little M10 and run and start recording it and um, I'm going to use it for a, a little sci-fi creature that I'm going to do today I think actually but um, you know it's, it's, it's that whole grabbing something on the fly um, and thinking forward too, like, you know, you've got um, films coming up in the future that I know I'm working on and uh, when they're kind enough to sort of send me visual um, cues or visual information or, you know, uh, art department, uh, artwork, that sort of thing, um, concept art, um, that's a real joy too because you get involved in the process of making the film. You become a filmmaker, not just, not just the end of the chain, um, to become part of the film early, um, it, it means more to you that way, I think. Um, the thing I always have to remember, and um, I get quite emotional thinking about it sometimes, is that um, you know directors and producers, they've been on the film that you're working on for years before you start, and they, they entrust you to come on board um, to you know, create that other dimension to their film you know bring that sound world to life and it's a gift it's a it really is you know and um <coughs> it's sort of like you've got to honor that thing that they've given you um sounds all very deep and meaningful but it should be i mean um you're, you're trying to find the emotion in the film you're trying to find a rhythm in the pictures um you're trying to find space where you can Sometimes, you know, some directors don't let you have space, and I've had that quite a, quite a bit, you know, where they already know what they want, and, and that's fine, it's their vision too, but, you know, it's nice when they allow you to actually let the, let the thing breathe, don't fill it up with too much music. Um, I love it when it comes together, I love the mix. Um, I, I love when they finish as well, even if you've been, you know, I mean, I think the worst... <laughs> Uh, not worse experience. The 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 one of the experiences I had were working 119 hours was my worst week, and um, 
people break under those conditions you know you you shouldn't work like that but when you come out of it um all i remember is you know hugging a fellow crewmate because they were down um and that family vibe of coming together um yeah sound crews like an extended family um and uh i think just don't think about the money think about what you're creating i mean it's important to get paid of course but um i think you know the first bunch of short films i wouldn't have been paid for very many of them at, at all um and i'm very proud of a lot of that work that i wasn't paid for um, um it's about the experience and about sharpening your tools i mean the other thing i'm very proud of and the thing i love so much is when you teach people when you train people um i'm like you know um we're working with some young people at the moment i'm trying to train them up and um but you know i'm very proud of you know rowan watson he's amazing he's in the uk doing stuff um you know just recording his own sound libraries and doing his own thing and he's got amazing ears you know justin doyle is at skywalker now I'm very, very proud of him. Shell, child of mine, my wife, um, she's amazing. She's doing some really cool stuff. It's really cool just seeing people grow and their ears get better and their ability to deliver stuff. And I love, you know, when I don't know how people make a sound, it's just like, how the hell did you do that, you know? Um, I do get joy watching other people's films. I don't actually judge them too much. Um, I have the ability to sort of watch a film and sort of just take it for what it is. uh, someone's creativity um, laid bare for everyone to criticize if they want um, you know it's good to um, just you know chill out watch the film uh, try and try and remember what you loved about it not not so much about what you hated but uh, anyway um, yeah Good luck to everyone out there in the sound world I know there's a lot more competition nowadays and a lot of people can sort of work from home and uh, the gear is amazing the plugins are amazing but you know uh, less is more sometimes um, I remember I st- when I started out I had an audio media 3 card and just the standard plugins that came with Pro Tools and um, oh and probably uh, a few I, I had like EQ uh, was a Q10 and the L1 um, but I didn't have much more and um, uh, just with a microphone recording the perfect element to put in the perfect place uh, and worldizing stuff is amazing um, uh, I, I still love to worldize now and you know people laugh at me sometimes for not using a plug-in chain where I go out and blast something in the world or whatever but it's like well what's it for I, I want to have fun I want to go out and I want to try something I want to make a mistake I want to do something wrong I want to um, you know try something and and laugh at it because it just sounds stupid um but i'm out there doing something and trying to um you know trying to make my life more interesting by by experimenting um yeah one last thing uh, uh, which i thought was really cool it was the one big eureka moment we have i well, we had had a few but like it was chappy and um we got the uh, VFX data and um, uh, straight from the VFX company and uh, a good friend of mine, Dave Lowndes, the guy I got the loan from my mum with, you know, years ago, uh, 
he he wrote this little piece of software that converted the VFX data into MIDI and um, you know we sat there looking at the numbers and one day and I remember sitting at Bolt Upright and figuring out how, how it could be done and he made this bit of software so Chappie was a real joy for me even though I, I didn't end up, end up staying on the film and finishing it off um, Steve Bodica did actually I think um, but um, uh, Shell did all the um, Michelle Child did all the um, ended up editing Chappie's stuff but it was all VFX data totally created Chappie and we just created sample banks that it was triggered from um, yeah I thought that was really cool that was that was a cool process I, I just enjoyed that robot was created from data um, which kind of really fit the, the whole theme of the film and anyway that's that whole experimental thing it's just you know experimenting is key um, sharing ideas with people um, and just using your brain before you use the internet um, is a cool thing too but um, anyway peace and love to everyone out there um, I hope you all uh, have um, some great experiences in your sound life um, and in your lives in general cheers Coronado and Teresa Moro. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or BH or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.